Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of Roar Lies Roar. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, joined tonight by my co-host, Nick Pollock. Nick, what's going on? Nothing much. I hope you can't hear my dog who decided to start barking literally when we pressed record. I So, little little inside baseball for all of you. After I hit the record button, uh, or whoever is hosting hits the record button, it has this little countdown, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and then obviously you get going. And uh, the countdown here at like 1... 0.5 and I, I just hear Nick's dog in the background so I'm very interested to see how that comes out in post but um, but uh, I, 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 you're not here to listen to us talk about the ins and outs of uh, podcast you're here to listen to us talk about Penn State football and Penn State this week has uh, it's home finale it's penultimate game of the season against Rutgers in Happy Valley uh, Scarlet Knights coming in as one of the one of the better stories in the uh, in the Big Ted at six and four, three and four in conference play. They're going to be going bowling this year under uh, Greg Schiano. And before we do that, obviously Nick wasn't on um, it on our recap for the Michigan game, uh, and obviously a lot has happened in between the Michigan game and where we are today. So uh, just generally, I think the way to start, Nick, is that. On the heels of the Michigan game, on the heels of Penn State uh, failing to beat Ohio State and Michigan again, on the heels of Penn State, uh, you know, ending this year probably in third place in the Big Ten East, on the heels of Mike Yurcich getting fired, just generally, how are you feeling about things? Yeah, I I think um, I know that Franklin's offensive coordinator hirings since Joe Moorhead have not exactly worked out the way that. Uh, we all and fans in general would have wanted, but you know, when it, when it comes to coaching decisions in general, I'm still pretty comfortable trusting that what Franklin decides is the best decision. Um, so, you know, in the case of the timing of this, of firing your like I, I've, if that's what Franklin thinks is best for the program, I'm down for it. Like I, I think it's absolutely worthwhile to get the, you know, if, if they know it's not going to be the fit for next year, like, yeah, why why keep him around? You can beat Rutgers and Michigan State without Mike Yurcich. I feel pretty confident in that. Um, so why not give yourself a head start on finding the next guy, whoever that is, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah, you know, oh, the bottom line is they scored twenty seven points in the two, in Ohio State and Michigan games combined. That's just not good enough. And that Washington, Washington, Ohio State, and Michigan both have very good defenses, and I don't think that we should discount that. But at the end of the day, like that's, that's not good enough. It, like this was a, this was a great chance for Penn state to make a move on both of those teams. And while I don't think Mike Yersich deserves to shoulder all of the blame here, I think there's, you know, I, I will always be the last person to call out players and I'm not, I'm not doing that here, but you know, Drew Aller has gone through growing pains and it's, you know, <laughs> that's not all on your sitch. Like I, it's, I think it's unfair to place the entire blame of the struggles of the offense on him solely. But in the end, you know, that's his job. His job is to get that side of the ball moving. And they, even in the games where they scored a whole bunch of points this year, the only one I can really say where I thought the offense looked, you know, for the most part, like a really strong functioning unit where like if you take that snapshot of them and move them into a game against any other opponent that I feel like it'd be successful was the Maryland game. Like even the early season blowouts, like it it didn't really ever feel super smooth this year with the Yurcich and Aller relationship. It just kind of felt clunky and they just kind of out-talented teams. Um, yeah. But, you know, I feel optimistic about what, is coming next for Penn state. So there's that. Yeah. It's a, uh, and I think this is a good time to ask, you know, we got a bunch of, we, we got our, uh, a collection of questions off Spotify, Twitter, whatever, uh, that we're going to ask throughout the course of this podcast. And, uh, there's one that you wanted me to ask Nick that came from before the Michigan game. Uh, and it came from, uh, Christopher, uh, Wilman Bunge off of the, uh, Q&A feature that you get off of Spotify. If you Shout Spotify, out Christopher, you can... a frequent yeah. Spotify question listener. We do see they're them always, all. Thank you. And they're, they're always very good. Like, it, it, it's, it, it's a certain, like, this, this one certainly made me think. And obviously, 
uh, for any of our listeners, if you use Spotify, they have the Q&A feature. You can hit us with questions there. We can answer them here on the pod. And Christopher's question here was, from before the Michigan game, hypothetically, say we lose to Michigan also in a similar fashion to uh, what I presume is the Ohio State loss. If that happens, who do you fire or at least give the credit slash blame of the loss of the game on and why? And Nick, despite the fact that this question goes back a bit, you wanted me to you wanted me to bring this up and you wanted us to have the back and forth uh, with this question. H- how did you kind of want to twist this question so we could talk about uh, Penn State's current situation on the offensive side of the football? Yeah, I think it's just this question presents a good chance to, you know, talk about why it's not like the issue isn't just Mike Yersich. Like, there's only so much you can do as an offensive play caller when your receivers don't get open, when your quarterback mm-hmm. is not identifying blitzes quickly enough and not being able to make his reads quickly enough, when the offensive line, uh, you know, one has probably undergone diff- more different starting lineups than you would have expected coming to this year with that rotation on the interior guys. But there, mm-hmm. I, I think it's just a good chance to remember that um, Yursich is just one piece of this and that when a team loses, like it's not as easy as just saying like, we need to fix that one thing and we're good. Like mm-hmm. firing Yursich, like I said, in this scenario, fine cool do it that's if that's what you think is best go for it but um you need to like there are still more questions that i think james franklin needs to be asking about um the personnel um on that side of the ball as well as of his position of the of his position coaches like i think it's worth asking ty howell like why haven't we seen theo johnson or tyler warren really seemingly take any strides as blockers like i know their strength is catching passes but like why haven't we seen them grow really at all as uh, as blockers, you know, helping out the offensive line? Like, I think it's fair to ask uh, Juwan Sater, like, why are we seeing Nick Singleton so consistently getting taken down by the first guy? Like, what happened to that little shimmy and burst that we saw last year? Like, I think there's more to it than just, ah, the play calling was bad. And I think that's an important thing for Penn State fans, mm-hmm. but fans in general to remember and consider. Yeah, there, there's no one... Like, I don't expect that Penn State's going to suddenly come out, put 70 points on Rutgers, and we're all going to sit here, like, furious, going, man, if only uh, Franklin fired Mike Yurcich sooner than um, than they would have been in Michigan, they would have this, this, this. this. Like, yeah. I, I think that I, I'm fine with getting rid of Yurcich because I thought he, ha- he, he absolutely had his flaws as an offensive play caller. Um, I thought just in general, his feel for situations wasn't great. It felt like he so frequently needed to go to smoke and mirrors, needed to go to something that wasn't you line up your guys, we line up our guys, let's go play some football and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And I, it always seems to me like he never had an especially great grit on Drew specifically. You know, this, this, this is a really, so, some food for thought I want to put out there. His best offense at Penn State came when he had a 39th year senior quarterback who could basically get up there and go, boom, boom, boom. Here's every single thing that's happening. I'm sending my protections. I see this blitz. I see what they're showing there. Let's go out and let's do it. I don't think you need, I think, don't think that even though I thought Drew Hour was going to have plenty of growing pains, I don't think your offense should have a considerable fall off in terms of being able to function on anything other than talent just for that one reason. Yeah. Uh, and I, and it, it that makes you wonder about like how he how you know what was he doing with Auer? Why is out like is this just who Drew Auer is or was he not being coached up prop? All these sorts of things. And I want to read a couple of quotes that James Franklin gave um gave earlier this week uh that I think do a good job of summing up um some questions that I have. Because Franklin's one of those guys, he will never explicitly say what he is thinking, or he will rarely explicitly say that he was thinking, but he's really good at leaving like that trail of red rooms. And I was thinking a lot about that quote from after the Iowa game where he said, I had to remind Mike to not get bored with what was working, but that sort of thing. Here are two things he said earlier this week. I think you guys have heard me coming and talk, whether it's openers, whether it's third down, whether it's starting fast, all those things are things that we've had lengthy discussions about and how to plan for 
But a lot of times when we got to the games, either we did not call the games that way or we did not execute the games the way we intended them to. And then he talked about, uh, you know, kind of the way that they've moved the offense around. That that quote came from our pal Daniel Gallon over at Penal Life. This comes from the Onward State uh, Sports Twitter account. Franklin talked about the offense being more collaborative uh, with Juwan Sider, uh, Ty House, but the offensive coordinator dudes, Danny O'Brien, kind of taking on the QB coach role. Obviously, we will find out for sure on Saturday, but I've been pleased with the process and how the coaches have handled it. And I think it's very easy to read this as Franklin throwing Mike Yurisich under the bus. Like, don't get me wrong. I think there is certainly an element there of, boy, Franklin was pissed at Mike Yurisich. And he is yeah. making it known without explicitly saying, boy, I am pissed at Mike Yurisich. But Nick, it certainly seems to me in listening to this stuff about Franklin that there were elements, again, we're, we're going to uh, take what he said and run with it. When it comes to Yurisich's feel for calling a game, when it's Yurisich's desire to stick to a game plan and what was kind of thought out as the best way to win this football game, whether or not it was actually the best way to win this football game or not is a completely separate thing, but whether or not this was going into this game, this is how we want to attack. And whether it was the willingness to talk and come up with something and work together as a head coach, office coordinator, and all the various position coaches, voices, etc., who uh, are involved with things. So when I look at why did Penn State lose to Michigan, I'm now hearing and seeing these stuff, this stuff, and we've seen go- in games, Nick, uh, Penn State, you know, offensive line, it's a pretty good unit, but it's not like an elite unit. The wide receivers have their issues, uh, more than enough issues with the wide receiver core. You have how Auer looks, you have the fact that Nick Singleton seems like he's kind of stalled out, and it's like, when you put that stuff with the stuff that Franklin is saying that is more behind the scenes, it's almost like, how could you have not fired this guy? Yeah. And yeah, like to your point, like there's certainly like a bit of like gamesmanship from Franklin here, like trying to <laughs> basically like throw your suit under the bus a little bit, but also like, you know, to, to ease the minds of the masses almost it's, it's like, it's saying like, Hey, it's fine. Like we solved the problem mm-hmm. going forward. We'll be better. Um, but yeah, it's it, the analogy. And before I get into the analogy, actually, this is kind of the, this is the risk you take. I think when you're a program like Penn state, when you, and, and I let me preface this by saying that even like with the benefit of hindsight, I have zero issue with the hiring of Mike Yersich. I think it was a great move at the time. I thought it Same. was absolutely the right decision it does illustrate the risks of hiring someone who has not called plays before himself because Mm -hmm. you know when he was at oklahoma state mike gundy was calling the plays when he was at ohio state ryan day is calling the plays. so like this is the first chance he really had to be that head coach of the offensive side of the ball and to that point we don't actually we don't actually really know if franklin gave him kind of that offensive CEO type of power that he did with, for example, Joe Moorhead. So maybe that's something as well, but it's well, the- well, here's, here's, here's the thing. I will, I will just parrot something that, um, that Christian Hackenberg said on, um, on, on the pocket of the podcast, the heels, their, their episode this week was very, very good. Uh, Wonderful I think Christian podcast. Ha- I think Christian Hackenberg would know better than most, um, about, uh, how James Franklin handles his offense. Um, and he basically said that, yes, he he's under the impression that Franklin is now like, this is your unit. Go ahead. And like Frank, I, I believe Franklin has even said like he's involved in game planning, but once we get to Saturdays, you know, maybe he'll, he'll say, here's the thing I'm thinking. Here's the thing I noticed, et cetera, but th- it's on you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, presumably he did have that power, but, um, like I was saying, like this is the this is the risk you run hiring a guy who very clearly very bright offensively. Like he has spent time with some of the better offensive minds in the sport. Obviously, he knows what he's doing. There's just there's a difference between having really great offensive ideas and being able to call a really great offensive game. It's like the difference between like why, you know, why a random person can be really great at Madden but can't actually go out there and coach a high school football team. It's just, it's just different. Um, and that's not to say that Mike Yersich at some point in his career won't 
figure that out. Like this is absolutely going to be a great learning experience for him. I fully expect him to end up back in an offensive coordinator role at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they took a shot and it just didn't, it didn't work out that way. And that's just the risky run. Yeah. I, it's worth remembering at the time that like, and this is something I believe Bill Cottley tweeted at the time, Penn state hiring Mike Yurcich was viewed as the like, a home run move to get you up to the big leagues, the sort of thing that Penn State just hadn't done uh, in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, cutting ties with the guy in Kirk Shiraka, whose name will come up later on this podcast, and replacing him with, you know, a guy with Yurcich's pedigree was viewed as like, oh, they're serious. They're mm-hmm. really going to go out there and do something. And it just never fully came to fruit. It, it came to a point where Penn State reached kind of that ceiling that a lot of people, myself including, I think you're also in this, Nick, think that Penn State just kind of has while Michigan and Ohio State are playing at this level. But now Yurcich is gone. Franklin's going to go out, and he's going to try and get himself a new offensive coordinator. And uh, Matt and I did a little bit of talking about this on Sunday. Nick, I want to get just your thoughts, your early thoughts before we uh, really, you know, before there's any, like, real reporting out there of, like, Franklin's interviewing this person, you know, uh, the flight tracker shows that uh, Penn State has a plane going to Salt Lake City, Utah, like all these sorts of things. As of right now, 5.58 p.m., Thursday, November 16th, 2023, who do you want Penn State to hire as its offensive coordinator? Oh, man, it's it's a tough question. Well, I, I... Here's, here's, an, here's an assumption I'm going to make. You pointed out in your sitch that you thought a f- big flaw of his was he had never called plays before. Do you think that is something that, like, you have to have called plays in order to be the person that James Franklin goes out? Like, do you think that someone who has never called plays before at the college, NFL level, whatever, they immediately have to be taken off? I don't think it's a non-negotiable. I, But I would think that Franklin would, after this experience, would perhaps just use it as a stronger data point than normal um (laughs) i do think the exception to that would be joe brady um but of course you know in in the time since then joe brady is now going to be calling plays for the buffalo bills so and and um, he he did call he he was the uh he was the play caller for the panthers when he was there yes 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 and sorry let me rephrase uh good experience calling plays (laughs) um (laughs) Oh, he 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 wasn't put in a position to succeed. By no, he was. I will just I will I will just put that there and wait for Matt to listen to this podcast and then get mad at. Me. But continue. no one no one involved with the Carolina Panthers has been put in a position to succeed since Cam Newton left. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I think he would be the exception even before the. I think the news of him becoming the interim Buffalo Bills offense coordinator does muddy things up a bit because he's going to have a uh, when you're a position coach. Yeah, when you're a position coach, it's a lot easier to go out and interview for a job like offense coordinator somewhere else. But mm-hmm. uh, when you are in charge of the offense for a team that has playoff and Super Bowl aspirations, uh, that's a, that's a time suck, and it's a time suck you uh, got to deal yeah. with, especially for him because like may, maybe he maybe there is a world where he is interested in that Penn State offense coordinator job, but he has always been seen as somebody who has you know NFL aspirations, right? Like he made yeah. a jump for a reason. So if he yeah. can put on a good performance here as the Bills interim OC, he's looking at potentially having that job going forward or maybe an OC job somewhere else. So I, d- I don't see that as a possibility anymore, honestly. Um, and and one thing I think is just worth mentioning is that the uh, final game for the uh, the Bills, their final regular season game is on January 7th. This is assuming the Bills yeah. don't make the playoffs, which suddenly does look like it's a fairly likely it's definitely thing. possible. Um, man. right now, final game of the regular season, uh, Sunday, January 7th. Uh, this isn't like the, certainly isn't the only thing, um, motivating Franklin, but I'm pretty sure the national championship game is the day after the early siding period for football is December 20th to 22nd. Um, I'm not sure when, uh, uh national signing day will be sometime in February, but like that would be, it wouldn't be like, a gigantic risk, but it, there is a risk of basically saying we're just not going to have an offensive coordinator for the next two months with uh, with 
games left on our schedule with the early signing period and with 15 bowl practices that could theoretically be part of trying to get this offense ready going into next season. Yeah, the bowl practices are the biggest thing. I think we've heard a lot of, you know, we've heard Franklin say how much of a benefit it was to hiring Manny Diaz, you know, basically right away so he could be around for those bowl practices and see the bowl game and all that stuff. So I I do think that they will try to hire someone before that. I think if, you know, if it ends up being this drawn out thing, maybe Brady comes back into play. But again, like it, if he's, if he call, if he's not successful enough with the bills, then there's also a question of like, is that the guy you want anyway? So Yeah, for a lot of reasons, I think Brady's off the table now. Um, Of course, the common name we've been hearing now is Joe Moorhead um, getting that reunion back. And, you know, my my feelings on this are basically uh, when his name first came up, there was a lot of people saying like, oh, well, you know, how's that going to work with Al? Or he's nothing like Tracing Sorley. I don't care about that at all. I, I think Joe Moorhead is his best skill is understanding his offensive personnel and knowing mm-hmm. how to use it effectively. You really think he's not going to figure out how to use a kid with a rocket for an arm, like to make his offense better. I don't believe that for a second. Like I, I'm sure he will, would still have drew Aller do some things running the football, like in the way we saw him do against Michigan last week. But, um, I think the notion that Joe Moorhead needs this, like trace McSorley type dual thread is ridiculous. And I not, I don't think accurate at all. Um, so from that regard, I think the marriage would be totally fine. I think it would be good from a recruiting standpoint because they could go out there even, you know, before he gets installed as the new, as the OC again, you could very easily point back to the 2016 and 17 season and say, Hey, look, look at what we did with this guy here. Like you can be a part of, you know, bringing this back to Penn state. So I think for a lot of reasons it works. I, I, I can't say that it would be like, have me head over heels excited, I guess, because there's an element of like, I mean, we did this before and it's not like what Joe Moorhead did was perfect against those Mm -hmm. teams that Penn state uses as the measuring stick, Ohio state and Michigan. Like there were a lot of issues in those games too. Like the way they were unable to finish off the 2017 game, you know, that absolutely comes to mind. Uh, But I, I would guess at this point in time, he's probably the favorite if he wants it. And I think that's a big asterisk too. Like, does he want to come back to state college and, you know, do this again? It, I, I would guess it like state college is a pretty comfortable place to live overall. He has familiarity. I, I would think he'd be okay with it, but um, who knows? Maybe he likes the freedom of getting to do with Akron, whatever the heck he wants to do with Akron. So, um, I think he's probably the leader in the clubhouse. I would ultimately be, I ultimately I'm cool with that. Like if that, if that's who Franklin wants, that's fine. But that's kind of the, that that's what it distills down to me. I still trust whoever Franklin hires. I'm going to trust is the right choice for the job. Cause I think Franklin knows too, that this is probably the most important hire he's made since he got to Penn state. Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning. Um, Akron has been really bad under Moorhead, and I, yeah. I, I'm i not sitting here saying it's Joe Moorhead's fault that they've been bad. Um, certainly a, a a program that is not used to having success on the football field. Uh, two and nine uh, on the year they actually lost to Eastern Michigan on uh, Tuesday night in double overtime to move to two and nine and season against uh, a, a a pretty, pretty good Ohio um, So they have team. a double overtime and a four overtime loss on their resume this year. That's brutal. Yeah, yeah. Oh. so if, if Moorhead wanted to come back, I'm sure everyone would be happy about that. Um, again, going to something Christian Hackenberg said, he, he made a lot of really good points about how Moorhead just knows how to take your guy, take his guys, put them in positions to succeed and build up their confidence in that and I think build up your confidence is just such an important thing with Howard right now uh, but it's weird because I think if you're trying to think of this as like a uh, you know home run swing for the fences statement of intent higher I don't necessarily know if getting the band back together does that especially off of you know with respect to Moorhead how his two head coaching stints have gone for again a lot of reasons outside of uh, his control necessarily but if they bring Joe Moorhead back my only concern would be it has to work right away. 
Yes. He, he is not getting any sort of grace period. And which isn't even to say like, oh, if that first year doesn't go great, at least he can worry about that second year when he gets a guy. No, 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 no. You need to win and win big right away if you are bringing Joe Moorhead back. And a big reason why you're going to bring him back is his familiarity with Penn State. So I, I, I think I would probably, at this point, I'm more open to Moorhead than I was at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then think, after I that, I think that like, factor yeah. you just brought up too is something that is relevant also when talk. It's it's not just relevant for talking about like why Penn State should think long and hard of this. It's also relevant for why Joe Moorhead should think long and hard about exactly. this. Like he exactly. was very clear. Like he he mm-hmm. was the offensive coordinator at Oregon. He did not have to take the Akron head coach yeah. job. He could have gotten right. a better job. He could have stayed at Oregon and gotten a, like he could have probably stayed one more year, gotten a better job um, if he had just. He could, you know, he, he could have been the guy that Oregon hired after Mario Cristobal left. If, yeah, like if there, there were well for him. there were different opportunities he could have pursued, but he was really adamant he wanted that Akron job because you know it was comfortable for his family, it was closer to home, all that stuff. And not that State College is super far away, but like let's say he comes to Penn State, things go poorly, Franklin gets fired, and that means you know Moorhead gets fired with him in all likelihood where does that leave him now? Like now he's back in this place. He didn't want to be like, he specifically took a job because it was comfortable and is probably a job that I, I don't see Akron firing him like unless they really bought him out. So it's definitely a consideration on his side too. Yeah. Then last night I realized that, um, former Minnesota Vikings, Seattle Seahawks, Detroit Lions, Jacksonville Jaguars, offensive coordinator, current Miami Dolphins, quarterbacks, coach and pass game coordinator, Daryl Bevel actually coached with Franklin uh, with the Green Bay Packers for a year. So that's it. That's that is my official pick for the um, the the really big boy hire. Nobody sees Daryl Bevel. Uh, and now that I said that and made Nick think about uh, Bevel also went to Wisconsin, Big Ten born and bred. Uh, he, he's from Arizona. he was a big name. He's been a big name a couple times when Wisconsin's had to look for a new head coach. His name always comes up. Do you remember when uh, remember, remember when Greg Roman was uh like viewed as someone who could be Penn State's head mm-hmm. coach. I thought I maybe Greg Roman. Who who knows at this point? It, it's it's a a lot of weird stuff. I just whoever it is, make sure they keep Danny O'Brien around because for whatever reason he is the just appears to be the greatest GA in the history of football. But, <laughs> uh, we, well, let, let's move on. And before we talk about Rutgers, let's pay some bills. Uh, Nick, it's the the holidays are coming up. Did you know that? Did you know I that? Did. Uh, I know did the holidays are coming. Yeah. And do you know? One, what I plan on doing for the holidays, one thing I plan on doing is purchasing people some gear from Homefield Apparel. Homefield mm-hmm. Apparel, longtime sponsor of our podcast. You know, ever since we decided to go podcast only, po- Homefield's been nothing but great to us, nothing but great to Penn State fans, nothing but great to fans of a lot of different other schools. If you ever go on a Homefield's website, you can see they have a lot, tons of stuff, tons of different kinds of merch for Penn State, but also tons of different kinds of merch for other schools. So if you were listening to this and you're not a Penn and you uh, are not a Penn State grad, but you're a fan grad of another school, and you just love Penn State football. If you are a Rutgers fan uh, listening to this, because you know there's a Rutgers preview coming, and uh, you want to get some Rutgers merch or whatever it might be, Homefield almost certainly has something for your school. Their stuff is really cool. It is really unique. It is really well thought out, and it looks different from the stuff that you can get, uh, you know, off of Dick's Sporting Goods website or from a place in. Uh, your college channel, whatever it is. So if you are interested in purchasing something from Homefield Apparel, use the promo code RLR23 for 15% off of your first order if you're a first-time customer. Again, first-time customers use the promo code RLR23 for 15% off of your first order at Homefield Apparel. Thank you again to Homefield Apparel, and thank you as always to Homefield Apparel for sponsoring the podcast. And Nick, let's get back to talking a little bit of football. Let's talk about what Penn State has on the horizon, uh, a school with which you and I as two natives of the great state of New Jersey are rather familiar, the mighty Rutgers Scarlet Knights come into this game six and four, three and four in conference play. Um, I think this game is not going to be fun. What about you? Um, I think there will be a stretch of it that is not fun, but I still think Penn State is going to end up winning this one pretty comfortably in the end, honestly. In mm. okay, I I. What I would basically say is that this Rutgers team, I think, is kind of designed to annoy the hell out of Penn State. And part of the reason I say that is because this Rutgers team annoyed the hell 
out of Ohio State and Michigan for a half in each of those games. Uh, Michigan went into halftime against Rutgers uh, with a 14-7 lead. They only got to 14 uh, on a touchdown with 141 left in the first half. Ohio State actually was trailing Rutgers at halftime, 9-7, to um, and, and you know, were able to more. go out. Yeah, should have been more. We're able to go out and uh, eventually turn things around in the second half. Rutgers actually coming off of a pretty gross loss to Iowa and Kinnick. And now they have to come around, come back, and go to Happy Valley. And Nick, I want to start with the side of the ball I'm not worried about at all. The side of the ball, I, I, I don't want to say not worried about it at all. Because if you're Penn State's defense after the last, after last week, and after both of their big games where the defense did every single thing that could have possibly been asked. Do you have any concerns of a letdown of, well, you know, there's just you know nothing here for us anymore? Or do you think Penn State's defense is going to come out and go, oh, we're really just going to, we're really going to take it to a Rutgers offense that is not special? Yeah, I, I wouldn't, I w- certainly wouldn't fault them for the former. Um, they've put in, two of the better defensive performances that we've seen from my Penn state team in the last 15 years, um, in their two biggest games of the season and the offense let them down twice. So there are, there are certainly grounds for them to be frustrated. Um, but Manny Diaz does a pretty good job of keeping that group motivated and, you know, keeping them hungry and, I I don't see this as a group that would that is going to be likely to do that. I think they take pride in the fact that they are one of, if not the best defense in college football. And mm-hmm. I I think they are going to see on tape. They're going to see Garrett Wimsatt's deficiencies as a quarterback. They're going to see you know they're going to see the body blows that they have taken. I mean, if we look at Rutgers, what they we know they just lost to Iowa, so they just played. Um, in order, Iowa, Ohio State, and then Indiana Rutgers or Indiana Michigan State. But so that's they faced two extremely tough defenses the past two weeks, and now you have to play Penn State. It's like if I'm Penn State's defense, I'm probably like looking at that, licking my chops a little bit, being like, "Oh boy, they are those boys are those boys are down bad right now. We have really have a chance to go just really have some fun on that field." Yeah, I the thing with Rutgers is that you look at what they... Are. Well, first, what they are as a team, 52nd in SP plus 93rd offensively, 21st defensively, 72nd and 77th in special teams. Uh, they can't throw the ball. They're yeah. just not good throwing the football. Uh, Gavin Wimsat, a talented prospect, uh, came into college with a lot of hype, but he's completed 48.2% of his passes, 6.1 yards per attempt, eight touchdowns and six interceptions. Were they were their kind of bread is buttered is in their ability to run the football. Kyle Monongai leads the Big Ten in rushing yards, one of the best running backs in the Big Ten, 181 carries, 9.2 yards per uh, 942 yards, 5.2 yards per attempt, seven touchdowns, and then Wimsat, 89 carries, 409 yards, four four point six per attempt, seven touchdowns. They have a lot of a couple other guys they'll fold in, but it's basically those two. And something really interesting about this Rutgers team, two, two things that are really interesting about this Rutgers team. One is that 60.66% of their plays on offense are runs, which is the ninth highest mark nationally. And Penn State is coming off of a game, Penn State's defense is coming off of a game against a de- an offense that basically did this to them, that tried to do this to them. And now they're going to have, they'll have to deal with a couple of body blows. They'll have to kind of get up for this game in a way that might be difficult, but they know what's coming. They know how to play against them. Their 4.3 yards per attempt for Rutgers are 57th nationally, so it's not like they're a great team on those situations. You, the big worry is Wimsett running. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will point out, I will throw a bit of an asterisk on. They don't exactly have their same receivers as the greatest show on turf Rams, but... Yards per attempt as a team, sixth, that is 119th nationally. Yards per completion as a team, 12.7, which is 39th nationally. So when they complete passes, even though it is not a, a particularly common thing, they are going for big gains. 
Wimsat doesn't get sacked. I think that uh, he's seventh national uh, records, the seventh national in sacks allowed per game. So you look at this, Nick, and I could just like this is a very easy game state to kind of view. Penn State bottles up the run and does not allow any sort of threat to get beaten in the passing game. And I don't see how Rutgers can potentially score points. Yeah, I that that's kind of where it comes down to for me. Like, I, I don't see the path for them. I'm sure they'll they'll break a, a run here or there. Like they did a really fun fumble ruski play with Mononga against Ohio State. I'm sure they'll try something like that in this game. Um, but it, it's yeah, Penn State's corners are good enough that they can leave those guys on islands and trust them and basically say, hey, if you want to score points, go ahead, complete a deep ball on our corners. Like I think Penn State should be more than happy to do that. They should be more than happy to um, tell one of the safeties of the linebackers, like, hey, your job is to watch Wimsat. Your job is to spy him this entire mm-hmm. game. Do not let him run and let everybody else just focus on Manangai and their other running back. So, like, it, it's the formula seems pretty simple to me. And I think the thing that will keep it from being like last week against Michigan is that while Rutgers' defense is good, it's not quite at that Michigan level, and I don't think the Penn State offense is going to leave the defense out to dry quite as much with you know really quick three and outs where they're just rushing back onto the field this the second after they sit down. So, um, I, I think I think the Penn State defense is going to have a pretty easy time controlling the Rutgers offense. Yeah, and to move to the other side of the football. I'm, I'm, even if Yurcich was still here, even if there wasn't that kind of upheaval, I'm still a bit concerned. And it's because Rutgers defense, again, 21st in defensive SP plus. Their run defense is about 3.8 yards per attempt, which is tied for 35th nationally. Good. Their pass defense, despite the fact that they are 108th in sacks per game, is awesome. They are third in yards allowed per catch at 9.8. They are fifth in yards allowed per attempt, which is at 5.7. They are 13th nationally in opponent passer. And their defensive front, uh, Aaron Lewis and Muhammad Torre, are very, very good football players up front. They are the guys that uh, are going to be... They're the guys Auer has to keep an eye on early and often. And then their secondary, Flip Dixon, Jaquan Woyo, are both really good players. But I'm concerned here, Nick, but... It, at the same time, you look at how Rutgers' pass defense works, and you look at how their pass defense worked uh, against Michigan and Ohio State. J.J. McCarthy, 15 for 21, 214 yards, a touchdown, and no picks. Kyle McCord, uh, thir- 19 for 26, 189 yards, 7.3 yards per attempt, three touchdowns and a pick. Okay, but not like... You know, okay, but not stellar games for those guys. I think Penn State's just going to lean entirely on its running game here. And they're going to ask Aller to do as little as possible. And I don't know if I love that. Because then if you need Aller to do something, he has spent the whole game not being put in a position to do anything. But I really do think this is going to be one of those games where they lean on Katron Allen and above everything else. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of Katron. I I don't think they're going to phase out the passing game too much i'm just expecting it to be very run heavy and very uh play action heavy um okay i'm not expecting a ton of just straight up dropbacks from aller in that regard so that's what i'm expecting to see um i i think the big thing here is that i just don't i'm not expecting the offense to have to travel the field all that much and i think that's the differentiator here i think the defense and the special teams units for penn state are going to be able to set them up with shorter fields more often than not and there's only so much the rutgers defense is fantastic it's a great unit it's greg shiano has done really great things with uh with that program in a really pretty short amount of time like i was talking to somebody i was talking to a washington fan and they were like okay so as part of this like conference realignment can we can we just bring uh oregon state and washington state with us also to the big 10 and kick out maryland and Rutgers? i'm like i can see why you think those are the teams to kick out those are not the teams to kick out of this conference right like it yes rucker that's not what Rutgers is right now like if they could score that would be a dangerous team um but ultimately, I think like 
it's a great defense, but they're going to run into the same problems that Penn State ran into against Michigan and Ohio State. There's just when you're, and it's the same problem they've run into all year, right? In their, well, not all year. They're, they only lost four games, but in their four losses, like you can have an amazing defense. It's just not enough on its own in the current day and age of college football. And I think Penn State's talented enough to get in the end zone enough early. Like this very easily could be like 10, seven and a half times. something like that. I wouldn't even be surprised if Rutgers was winning, honestly, but it's just going to be a body blow mm-hmm. theory over time, I think. Yeah. And I, I actually look back to last week when they played against Iowa. Iowa, not exactly known for its good offense. <laughs> Uh, the Hawkeyes, 9 for 18 on third down, 2 for 2 on fourth down, 402 total yards, 223 yards through the air, 7.2 yards per attempt, 179 yards on the ground, 3.9 yards per carry. I don't think the Penn State will throw the ball that much, but you, we have seen that you can move the ball a little bit on this Rutgers team, uh, which, again, it's going to be really well coached. It's going to be fired up. It's going to want to try and knock off a top 15 team. Uh, especially one like Penn State, where there's always just going to be that little bit of bad blood uh, between Penn State and Rutgers. But I think that going into this game, Penn State's offense, it's obvious something just wasn't right in the last couple of weeks. And this is going to be a really good example of whether or not they were able to kind of figure those things out. And I think that leads into Nick, what players are you watching if you want to name anyone on defense, by all means, name someone on defense. But on offense, particularly, who are the players that you're watching for Penn State? This game? Who are the ones that you think are going to, uh, who you think are going to be able to provide some kind of a spark, have some kind of a big game? And you know, if we're in that scenario where it's ten seven Rutgers at halftime, are able to come out and just kind of, you know, take control of this game and help guide Penn State to a win? Yeah. So it's it's the cop out answer, but it's Drew. For me, I same I because I you gotta you gotta see how he responds to you know he's he was recruited by Mike Yersich he's known Mike Yersich for a while now he's a 19 year old kid there is absolutely no scenario where he doesn't feel some responsibility for the fact that Yersich is now gone and I whether that's fair or not I want to see how he's able to handle that mentally and what that kind of looks like on the field. Um, because even though Penn State can win this game by primarily running the football, I think they're going to need Allo to throw a little bit. Like you can't, Rutgers defense is too good to get away with not throwing the ball at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, they are going to ask him to do something because this, you know, this is also still evaluation time for Drew Aller as well. Like they need exactly to see more from him the rest of this season in order to help prepare for next season. They need to continue you know, uncovering more about like what it was you're doing in scenario A, scenario B. Like they need to learn more about him in these live uh, scenarios. So I I don't see them, I don't see them stopping the pass game altogether in lieu of the run. Um, the other person I'm watching, not a player, I just, I want to see how Juwan Sater and Ty Howell call this game. Mm. I, and, and this is, this is actually one of the reasons why I think Penn State's going to end up being just fine in this game is because, for Rutgers now, you don't really know what to expect in terms of offensive play calling. And not that what Yursich did was terribly fluid anyway. It probably wasn't all that easy to game plan for him, honestly, because it seemed pretty random from week to week. But you have no idea what Juwan Sater and Ty Howell are gonna do. Like you have no idea what they're gonna what they're gonna push. Like you have the inclination, like, oh well, Ty Howell, he's a tight ends guy. Are they gonna throw more of the tight ends? I don't know, but so I, I'm interested to see how those mm-hmm. two um, end up calling the game. And it's also going to be indicative of like, you know, we assume that Sater or Howell are not too high up the list of candidates, but this will also be a really good indication of, you know, should they be like, this is the start of their audition. Mm. So something yeah. to consider. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm going to say our as well. And Everything you said about responsibility is 100% true. I also think... I, I think back to after the Ohio State game, where the kid was in tears. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that that performance did something to him. And he went out there and he faced the media, God bless him, and said, 
I never want this to happen again. I never want this game kind of game to happen again. And then he came out in the exact in the exact circumstance where he could, you know, he could have had his breakout game. He could have had his game to announce itself in the national stage. And he was just as bad. His pat, yeah. you know, QBR, QBR liked his Michigan performance a bit more. Passer rating against Ohio State, 88.9. Passer rating against Michigan, 87. By passer rating, he basically had the same. Mm. And what I will say is that Franklin thinks highly enough of him that he made it a point to say Drew made very clear he wanted Danny O'Brien and he wanted Danny O'Brien to be kind of there in the foxhole. And Penn State just fired the office coordinator who recruited Drew, brought him along. And they are now going to hire a new offensive coordinator based, not totally, but in part off of his performances in those two games. And the kid has to bounce back. He has to. Not saying he will. I'm saying he has to. Like, right now, he is in the portion of his season where he has to show to himself, to the coaches, to the fans, to other teams, and to NFL people, I'm coming next season. And if this is an opportunity for him to start that against a really good passing defense, and I really just want to see what he does there uh, with with all of this out there. And I'm also, the other guys I'm going to point out are Theo Johnson and Tyler Warren. Uh, Like you mentioned, Ty Howell coming in. Um, He's now going to be a much larger role in the offense. Hopefully that means to the tight ends having a much larger role in the offense. Hopefully that means to... You know, Franklin spoke a lot about the need to get Drew in rhythm and call games in such a way to get him in rhythm. Tight ends are a really big part of that. So I want to see if those two guys can end up going out there and having big roles and help Drew as he tries to lay the foundation for next season and start by laying the foundation this weekend against Rutgers. Uh, Noon kick on FS1, final game of the season, senior day in Beaver Stadium. Penn State's entering this one as a 20-point favorite. Total is uh, 40 and a half. If, you know, I'm not very good at math, but I think Vegas would probably have this as something like a 30 to 10 Penn State win. I don't have the SP Plus number up. Nick, what do you think? I assume you're going to pick Penn State to win. Final score, what are you thinking on this? I actually really like 30 to 10, honestly. <laughs> I think that's... That's pretty indicative of what how I think this game's going to go. I, I think Rutgers is going to um, find a way to get in the end zone in the first half. I think Penn State probably comes out to a relatively slow start. Um, like I said before, I wouldn't be surprised if halftime is like 10-7, 13-7, 13-10, 16-10, something like that. Um, but I think you know, as we move into the fourth quarter, move the late third quarter, fourth quarter, I think it's just going to be too much for Rutgers. Their defense is going to be asked to do too much. I think Penn State's going to be able to, you know, start to move the ball in bigger and bigger chunks as the game wears on. And um, ultimately, I do think they end up around 30 to 10, maybe 27, 10, right somewhere around there. Yeah, I was thinking 27, 10, 27, 13, something in that area. Like I got we, ha- we didn't mention it again, but the fact that goddamn Kirk Shiraka is their offensive coordinator. <laughs> like, the- everything about this game is just so absurd. Happening after uh, Yurisic got fired, happening at home, uh, second game in a row where Penn State is going to be uh, going to be playing at home. They haven't done that in a Big Ten game this season. First time is the very end of their Big Ten slate. I actually, what I- last year they had it for... Uh, Minnesota and Ohio State. So hmm. back-to-back games at home after like the home crowd really gave it to this team in a way that they've just never gotten. And now they have to go can, can back we also, out. Can we call the uh, the tunnel seating a uh, bona fide failure now? <laughs> I, You know what? Uh, tell me about the NIL situation, how it's impacted by this, and I will then tell you if it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, just a really hostile environment. Are people going to want to get up for this one? Are fans going to want to get up for this one? Are the players going to have to- have a hard time getting up for this one? You know, does Kirk Shiraka know a thing or two about Penn State just because he had been here? 
probably, but I don't know if that'll be enough. But yeah, I think it was one of those games where it's way too close for comfort at halftime. Penn State ends up winning something like 27-13. And, you know, we just don't feel great about it. But Penn State coming out and really, um, you know, it's also a stage for them to come out and, you know, bring the hammer down on the worst team. So hopefully they're able to take advantage of that. And I think now is a good time to wrap up the pod by just going through a couple of listener questions. And we got these, again, off of uh, that feature on Spotify. If you uh, use Spotify, there's that Q&A feature. Go in there, ask us some questions. We'll get them in for for future editions of the pod. And we're going to start with uh, a question from uh, Lauren Brantingson-Matz. I'm 11 minutes into this podcast. Appreciate your thoughtful approach. Uh, Thank you, Warren. Nick, please say thank you, Warren. Thank you. That said, how does breakdown in quote-unquote process or player development or fourth down calls or even coach selection not fall on Franklin? And it's a really good question. And I'm going to, before I give it to Nick, I want to read a quote that Franklin gave that I think kind of sets the table. So he gave this yesterday. He said this a few times over his I want a head coach of the offense. I want a head coach of the defense. I want a head coach of special teams. I want them to approach it that way. And then he says, ultimately, I'm responsible for all of it. And I think that's important because, Nick, I think that highlights that all of these not big picture things are not necessarily on Franklin, but they are on guys who are hand-picked by Franklin to do them at the very highest level. And I basically liken it to, you know, there's a CEO at my day job. It's not the CEO's. It it is my fault if I make a mistake, but it reflects on the CEO of the company. And that to that end, like it's, I don't necessarily think it's on James Franklin. If, you know, Tyler Elston doesn't develop the way that Manny Diaz is trying to get him to develop or something like that. But the pro- the question is, is James Franklin hiring the right people, putting people in the right positions to succeed so they could then filter that stuff down to the players? Yeah. And, you know, as, as you were kind of saying, like it, he, he, as he said at the end of his quote, like that ultimately falls on me. Uh, you know, it does. Like it's his job is to, ultimately take responsibility for everything that happens in your program. Um, this is not a subtweet about Jim Harbaugh. Um, it is, you know, it, that's his job. That's his role. Like if, Mm -hmm. if you, if there's a breakdown in, you know, if there's a breakdown in process like that, whether or not it doesn't matter that he's not the one that was calling the offensive plays, like it's his program. Like there's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not as cut and dry as say like the NFL, where yes. like when you're in the NFL, like you are really only worried about game day. Like you, you have so many more coaches to help handle development, and all that. You have a front office who's you know primarily the ones bringing in players. Whereas in college, like you are everything. You're the GM. You are you know you are five coaches in one because you're limited on the number of guys you can have. Like there's so much mm-hmm. more responsibility. So it's understandable why you know, we do pass off the blame for some of these things from Franklin directly, but ultimately, you know, it is his job to take to, you know, to fall on that sword. And he does like I more often than not, I really do think he he does. He does. a. I think he has a bit of a reputation as being a guy who doesn't necessarily do this, but I do think he's one of those guys there, you know, right immediately after a game, he's not always immediately after a loss. Shockingly, he's not always the nicest guy in the yeah. world and the most cuddly and most clear-eyed guy in the world. But he is usually pretty good at basically saying, like, listen, I take responsibility. I, I he I can't remember what what after the Ohio State game specifically was an example of that, but I know there was a, an example of that after the Ohio State game. Yeah. And you know, and then in terms of like going forward on fourth down, when to call timeouts, like, yeah, obviously that's that's gonna be his decision in the moment. And he he's always owned that, even you know, even after the the to this point, I still don't really understand why they went for two after that touchdown against Michigan. I mean, I do, I get, I get what he explained, but it, it was not a good explanation. But he still owned it. Like he didn't pass it off and say like that was Mike's call or something like that. Like he's, he's yeah. always owned that stuff. And um, it's you know, I, 
the answer to the question, I think, basically is like, you know, it does fall on him, you know, because that's his job. He hires the guys who are supposed to carry out his, uh, you know, his message and, you know, his ideas and all that stuff. But, um, I mean, there's there's obviously nuance to it at the same time. Yeah. It, it, it's a results-based business. And um, I, I've always had a bit of a theory. It's a pet theory. It's not, you know, it might be total nonsense that for whatever reason, bad offense gets blamed on the head coach and bad defense gets blamed on the defensive coordinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd be very interested in... Um, in what how we'd be talking about this game if Penn State lost it or how we'd be talking about things if Manny Diaz was just the guy who got fired and Penn State lost uh their big games you know 56 to 49 or something like that. so uh yeah I I I also think you in terms of criticizing Franklin there are a lot of things that he has gotten right over the years Hiring Manny Diaz was a stroke of genius. Keeping Brent Pryor out was a stroke of genius. Hiring Joe Moorhead was a stroke of genius. The way that they recruit, the way that they get the most out of their players, the way that they send guys to the NFL, the way that, you know, there was one clip in particular after the Ohio, after the Michigan game where I think he was walking off with Vega Iwane and a fan was screaming some stuff at Franklin. And Vega, in that moment, seemed like he was willing to run into the stands and lose his scholarship. <laughs> And I think it speaks a lot to a coach when you still have players who are willing to fight for you like that. Uh, but again, at the end of the day, that's not even to mention all these done, you know, in helping to help improve NIL, get more money yeah, flowing in for the, the stadium. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, results based business. He doesn't turn the results around in the next couple of years. He doesn't get the result right with this coordinator hire. He's going to be on a hot seat. But. I, I think a lot goes into this. And Warren, again, thank you for your question. It's a really great question. I think that there are ways where blame falls at Franklin's feet. But I also think there are a lot of ways that it doesn't. And those are just worth mentioning. Uh, kind yeah. of going off of that, a question from Noah Fleck. Uh, Do you think James Reichel will ever take Penn State to the next level? He has the talent, but a stupid play calling costs them. I love your guys' podcast so much. <laughs> Noah, thank you for the kind word. Nick, say, please say thank you to Noah. <laughs> thank you, Noah. Uh, it's such a tough question because I'll, I'll just kind of flat out say it as Penn state is currently constructed as Penn state operates as a football program. I think there are always going to be things that make it hard for them to get to that very next level because of some of the teams that are on that next level. Ohio State and Michigan, two in their division. Uh, you look at the college football playoff rankings as of uh, as of today, Washington and Oregon are the top five right now is Georgia, Ohio State, Michigan, Florida State, Washington, top six, Oregon. Two, three, five, and six are all about to be in the same conference as Penn State. And I think, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Washington and Oregon come back to earth a little bit next year, but I think there are just there are ways that it would be hard for just about anyone to take Penn State to the next level. Um, I don't necessarily put it on, you know, respectfully, no, I don't necessarily put it on play calling uh, because I do think Franklin gives, you know, head coach of the offense, head coach of the defense. Uh, but yeah, Nick, I, we're here. We get this. It's a question that pops up all the time to one extent or another, but Franklin and getting Penn State to the next level, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so... Obviously, there are jobs that are, you know, tougher. Let's uh, say Indiana, really, really tough football job. Akron, really, really tough football job. In the kind of the tier where Penn State is, like you're you're not one of those bottom feeder teams, but you're like, it's it. There's a tier. There's a tier there. In terms of the schools in that tier that Penn State is now in, you know, because. Before Franklin, they were not in that tier. They were worse than that. He has elevated them. Um, it, there's a very good argument to be made that he has had the most difficult job in college football when you consider the expectations of the fan base, the fact that they have two of the best programs in college football history in their division, 
when you consider that they are directly recruiting against those two programs and then are consistently having to you know watch those recruitments they lost play out right in front of their eyes when you consider the um the lack of um the lack of buying into nil right away by you know a lot of other people around the program like there's there's a really good argument to be made that he has had with all those things combined, the fan expectations that come with that, because fans expect them expect Penn State to beat Ohio State every year. Like that's an expectation. It's 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 a really really tough job, um, and I I think that's absolutely a absolutely a factor here when you talk about like you know can he take them to the next level? I think it's important to first recognize that he has taken them up at least two levels from where they started. And that the last step is always the hardest. And there's, you know, even though it might not look like it, all of the things that go into making Penn State more and more like Ohio State, more and more like Georgia, more and more like those top, top teams are still happening. Like NIL is improving more and more. Stadium is getting, you know, the stadium is getting more and more, uh, you know, money poured into refurbish. The Mm -hmm. Penn State's blue chip ratio, for those of you unaware, um, I believe Bud Elliott started it uh, a while back now, but basically it's the, um, it's just the percentage of your roster that was four star kids or better. Next year's roster for Penn State is going to be the highest mark I think they've ever had. I believe I saw Pat Corbo tweet that. I think next year that's going to be like 64% of the roster or something like that is going to be four star or higher. That's the highest Franklin's had. And like, it's really easy to look at the season and be like, well, I mean, they weren't even close to being Ohio State and Michigan. It feels like we're further away than ever. But at the same time, like everything else about the program is still improving. And when you factor in how far behind Penn State was when James Franklin got here, in basically all of those things and how much progress he's made. I'm not willing to write off yet that he can take them over that last hump. And then we're not even getting into the fact that the sport is about to change drastically. Like (laughs) the 12 team playoff is going to change everything about college football. Like you now like two losses when you're Penn state, you have two losses. You're a playoff team. Like there is so much more leeway now. And as we see with every playoff system and every sport, if you can get in, you have a shot. So the whole calculus of the question is even about to change drastically. So I don't see a reason why James Franklin can't be that guy. I can't sit here and say definitively one way or the other. Like there's, it's perfectly possible that Franklin, you know, is at his ceiling and that, somebody else is going to be able to, you know, come in here, take the great work he's done, build on it, and then smash through that ceiling and find find a new one. But um, I'm not willing to sit here and write off that he can't be the one right now. Yeah, I mean, my, my basic stance on it is that uh, James Franklin, when he loses, when he plays games again as an underdog, he tends to lose those games. When he plays games as a favorite, he tends to win. And I don't have the answer to this. Maybe he's not the guy to answer this question. Maybe it's somebody else. I don't know. But how do you make it so Penn State is going into those games and they're not underdogs? That they are universally viewed as just as good on both sides of the ball, if not better than those other teams. Hopefully this new offense coordinator kind of takes a step in the right direction towards answering that question. Uh, final question. Started the question, I started the pod with an older question uh, from Christopher Wilman Bunge. We're going to end with uh, one that came from before the UMass game. And so the record numbers here uh, are going to be a little bit off. But Franklin, 3-5 and five against Michigan and Michigan State, 1-7 against Ohio State, 2-13 and 13 to get the top 10 teams. Uh, now it would be 3-6, and 1-8, and 2-15 and, uh, and 15 respectively. With Big Ten Conference expansion, uh, parenthetical RIP Pac-12. Do you think he will improve on those stats or do worse? And Nick, Nick I'll give you a sec to take this because I have a I have a take here that uh, I think a lot. I, I know Matt is going to hate it, uh, but I want to hear your thoughts on this first. I think that there it, it's 
it's a really tough question to answer, right? Because we don't know what teams are going to be ranked in the future. I think the possibility exists for Penn State to have more opportunities to improve on that than they have had in the past. Because the biggest thing holding the the reason I hate this top ten Franklin record thing so much, like call it what it actually is and just say James Franklin's record against Michigan and Ohio State. That is a far more accurate reflection of what we're talking about because you can't compare James Franklin top 10 wins against, you know, somebody in the Big 12 top 10 wins, right? Because they're every year there are teams that start in the big start start in the top 10 at the end of the year and end up not even ranked at season end season's end and they whoever beat them still got a top 10 win by doing that penn state's top 10 games are only almost exclusively against michigan and ohio state and they come in october and november when there's no question who the top 10 teams are really like there's there's nobody getting a top 10 win over usc this year for example like that is not a you can I don't care that they were ranked number seven at one point. That's not a top 10 win and it shouldn't be billed as such. Um, so I think they will have more opportunities to get those wins simply because there are more good teams in the conference going forward. And I think that the chances are higher that you have a Washington or an Oregon or a UCLA um, ranked in the top 10 at season start. And Penn State, you know, with the expanded teams in the conference, there's going to be more Big Ten games earlier in the year. And I think Penn State will have more opportunities to play those teams that are, you know, I'm going to refer to as fake top 10, um, or at least, you know, not quite top 10, top 10. So I think just the number of chances will um, expand against teams that are not Ohio State and Michigan, who are, you know, consistently some of the best teams in college football. Yeah. And one thing that I, I think fo- college football fans need to prepare themselves for is that those records still might not look great for te- for a team like Penn State. They're going to get worse for Michigan and Ohio State and Oregon and et cetera as well. Yeah. Because I think it's very possible that the Big Ten just kind of turns into a meat grinder <laughs> for all intents and purposes with the caliber of teams coming in. So like, I think it's going to be very possible going forward that the 12th, 15th best team in college football is a Big Ten team that goes eight and four. And looking at this through the lens of those new teams are coming in, uh, USC, UCLA, Oregon, Washington, I think it's very possible that, you know, Penn State plays, you know, splits games against those teams, loses to Ohio State, loses to Michigan. Again, sits there at nine and three and is like the eighth best team in the country. Mm-hmm. So I I think that a lot of talking about this stuff going forward is going to take an adjustment period for all of us. Uh myself, yourself, Nick, all of our listeners, etc., where we have to figure out what college football is going to look like after this year and whether, you know, even something like going 11 and one instead of now being like, that's a really good thing. Good for them. That is awesome. Glad they did it. It's now like, you know, going 16 and one in the NFL or sort of 15 and two or something like that in the NFL. So yeah, I, we've, we've gone on long enough. We've taken up enough of your time, Nick, anything to say before I send the people into their weekends. Let's have a nice bounce back game against Rutgers. Yeah. And uh, I don't disagree with Nick. Thank you everyone for, listening to this edition of the pod as always make sure you go and subscribe wherever you go and get your podcast apple podcast five star review spotify five stars send us q a uh there head on over to youtube look up roar lions roar we're over there subscribe to us hop into the comments talk ball with other folks there follow us on twitter at rl or blog and one last time i want to thank home field apparel our sponsor if you were a first-time customer use the promo code rlr23 for 15 percent off of your first one last time, thank you very much for listening to this edition of Roar Lions Roar. For Nick Pollock, I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone. Go State.